Shalom, my friends, and welcome back to the Eagle's Eye podcast. This is episode 17, and this is Life in Romania, part two. Can you believe we're actually on to episode 17 already? Yes, indeed. Uh, This is part two of uh, Life in Romania, uh, part of the um, Eagle Eye podcast that we've been doing. And uh, yeah, we're still in this strange time of COVID-19. I don't know how you're finding things, but uh, we're not out of it yet. We're not out of it yet. And um, yeah. Can remember thinking you know you go through seasons in your life don't you where you think this just can't get any worse surely <laughs> well that's what it's like now you know can it really get any worse it's, it's got to improve we're gonna to have to find a cure do you know i can remember thinking or having these thoughts back in the early 90s and um, just before I start to, to sort of like chew over some of the things uh, that we were actually um, s- struggling with in the early uh, 1990s uh, in connection with Romania, um, I just want to say uh, I was really, really encouraged uh, by a few people who took the trouble to write in again regarding um, last episode episode 16's podcast of uh, life in romania part one uh, barbara she mentions on on uh facebook uh that um my going into detail brought back lots of memories uh, to barbara and um what she's written i mean it could be there if you if you're on uh, facebook and just go to my page it's it's, it's all there but um you know, I really do appreciate the fact that she mentions. She says she was so moved by the scenes, and 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 that she says she was feeling powerless to help. Uh, God used every willing heart, folk like yourself, and the precious minister, to be his mouth, hands, arms, feet in that situation. And do you know, isn't that what we we all should be in life in general? I mean, specifically during this time of. Um, of, of the coronavirus you know how can we be willing to be the mouth the hands the, the, the arms the feet etc the eyes that see that the voice that comforts how can we do this and put it into practice and somehow cut across the what i am seeing is um the selfishness of man uh and um a really strange time in our lives. Um, other people, such as um, Brenda, um, really um, uh, thank you for, for, for commenting, uh, just thanking me for sharing the, the uh, podcasts. Uh, Sheila, Sheila Hughes, uh, that brought back memories for her because apparently Sheila was out there uh, 
visiting Romania more or less the same time, although doing it through Open Doors, which was, funnily enough, a, another organisation that I used to be a member of. Well, actually still am. Um, and, uh, yeah, the usual people, uh, Ian and, and, and uh, uh, Sharon and other people uh, commented, um, June and Christine, there are so many. Uh, really do appreciate, and all the emails that I've got too, really really do appreciate it you know keep keep your messages coming it 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 is good it's good to learn that um i'm not just talking to myself <laughs> in these podcasts but this is episode 17 and and you know i was thinking about the title of it life in romania part 2 hmm actually it should probably be called once upon a nightmare journey <laughs> because do you, do you remember, there used to be um, a musician, I'm, I'm guessing he's still on the go somewhere, a musician called Chris Rea, who actually came from uh, the town of Middlesbrough. He, he wrote a, a song once, or was it an album? No, I think it was a song as well as an album, The Road to Hell. Um, interesting <laughs> song. Yeah, well, that was my experience on... Uh, the second time I went to Romania on what was very much a nightmare journey. And, and I just want to share some of my thoughts regarding this. Some of them uh, are quite harrowing, difficult. Um, I'll leave some of the, the, the darker stuff out. Some of it was quite frightening. Some of it was quite hilarious. Uh, some of it was just totally crazy. But... Um, as I mentioned the last time, uh, in, la in the last episode, naturally the biggest shock when I got to Romania was when we toured the orphanages that spilt over with unwanted children, many plagued with, with the uh, HIV, uh, AIDS virus, and other serious medical ailments. And, um, you know, the horrors, I mentioned this the last time, the horrors that uh, Ceausescu left behind couldn't simply be swept under the proverbial carpet because the, the physical and the psychological damage was huge and widespread. And um, sadly, there was no instant delivery, delivery for these people. There was no, for want of a better word, salvation for these people that was just going to miraculously happen, happen overnight, despite... There wasn't just our, the, the charity that we worked for, the Romanian AIDS charity, which became uh, Children in, in Distress. Um, there was other charities as well, other people doing uh, great deeds, many of them not Christian. Um, and uh, yeah, although um, other people must have experienced the same experiences that we experienced, um, it was... It was certainly a learning curve, if nothing else. Um, Romanian Children's Aid started on September the 20th, 1990, uh, when nine men from a local church in Barkenside, London, with no experience of driving lorries, set off with uh, four trucks of humanitarian aid to Romania. Well, do you know what? When we set off, I had no real experience of this either. The journey was to involve driving 3,200 miles, of which, um, as I mentioned, I, I drove later on. 
once the hospice in Chenavoda was built. Um, children in distress, or remaining children's aid, as it was when I was a part of it, was a very small UK-based charity. And uh, as I mentioned the last time, it was it was founded by the Reverend Dr John Wormsley, a real lovely, humble man, a man that really inspired me. Uh, and I, again, I mentioned last time, despite the horror of what we all witnessed, he always seemed to be positive. He always smiled as if to say someone much greater than him was at work in this ministry of dying children. And, you know, we will never understand why God allows suffering. But he will always use people like John Wormsley and other folk. And while the ethos of the organisation was Christian, um, at the time when I was a part of it, it actually, uh, race, religion, didn't necessarily come into it, or at least we tried to cut across all these issues, because in Eastern Europe, um, the work crossed ethnic religious boundaries. We just wanted to be the hands, feet, etc. of the God that we served. However, um, although the initial work was St. Lawrence's Hospice, which was built in Chenavoda in Romania, it wasn't that long before the, the work of children in distress, hence the change of name, uh, kicked off in other countries such as Albania and Bulgaria. And as I mentioned, amid the shocking scene of seeing babies and children rocking themselves uh, in an awful situation from the loud crying to even quiet moans of the children, nurses seemingly unable to cope with the vast amount of work, it was just an awful plight when you first saw these scenes. Many babies laid in wet clothes, many with shallow eyes and wrinkled faces, simply just dying without anyone noticing. And without doubt, all of this was the grim legacy of Ceausescu. However, it didn't end there. And although babies did still die, many died, it wasn't without anyone noticing. It wasn't without any people caring. And you know what? One of the big, big uh, images that's always part, a part of my soul, it'll always live within me, was the fact that we were able to go there and show the locals, even, even the local um, nurses and, and, and care workers, that actually you don't need to bind these children in cloths. You don't need to um, be distant from them. You could actually pick them up. You could actually cuddle them. You could actually give them a kiss. You could actually show them love. And 
you wouldn't necessarily, you know, be infected with this strange uh, thing called HIV. But according to statistics, Romania was threatened with 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 uh, a a massive massive epidemic something which they just could not work with at all hence the need for romanian children's aid hence the need for these people who uh, just felt God had, had, had laid this issue upon their hearts. And, you know, I have a quote here uh, from the founder of Romanian Children's Aid, a guy called, uh, I've mentioned him before, the Reverend John, Dr. John Walmsley. And he states this, and, and this will always stay with me. God spoke to me as I stood in a dirty room in a dirty hospital ward looking down into the cot of a dying child and seeing in her eyes a depth of emptiness that I will never forget. As I stared into the eyes, I knew beyond a doubt that God was calling me to take up my cross and follow him. And children in distress was born. And only because I have tried to keep listening, often faithlessly, sometimes doubtingly, but always hopefully that the charity has been blessed and dead eyes brought to life. Wow. Wow. Those weren't my words. Those were the words of, of, of uh, Dr. John Walmsley. And, and, and what I want to try and do is share some of my thoughts on dead eyes being brought back to life in, in future episodes of these podcasts. However, for now, I just want to concentrate on the second trip that I was to face with Romania, with the colossal drive from our hometown in England across Europe, taking much needed supplies for this newly built hospice, which would test my co-driver and me to the limit. I remember having to set off really early with my co-driver, Dave Johnson, uh, who I met recently again, and we had a, a good giggle about some of the things that we got up to. Uh, and uh, initially we had to drive down to Barkinside uh, to the Children in Distress uh, Centre to collect the rest of the cargo that we were going to be taking to Romania. Uh, and of course, we were going to be joining a team of volunteer workers from two Anglican churches that uh, at the time we were attending. One was St. George's in Normanby, uh, St. George's Church in Normanby. The other one, Christ Church, the sister church in Eston. And, and they were flying out to Romania to do the essential work at St. Lawrence's Hospice in Chenevada. Uh, and Dave, Johnson and myself, were the drivers of the truck so we would be meeting them there you see so that's 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 sort of like the picture okay and i can still remember feeling tired <laughs> even at the beginning as we drove down the year one to essex uh, and then of course we had to wait for all the paperwork and you know i even felt asleep in the truck waiting for the paperwork not a good sign considering we had a four-day journey ahead driving through europe 
So we took the ferry to Belgium and suddenly we were thrown into the nightmare of driving on, on the opposite side of the road in a British truck. <laughs> Trying to look at paper maps and road signs to find our way. Now, of course, what you have to think about, right? You know, forget modern day technology. These were the days before sat-nav. These were the days before mobile phones, okay? Uh, now, I know, I know. <laughs> you wouldn't leave the house today without your mobile phone. If you get into going anywhere, you, you'll type a postcode into a sat-nav. Well, forget it, okay? You've got none of this. And I remember my co-driver doing a splendid job navigating our way through Belgium as I drove to Germany. And once in Germany, we thought things were getting better. Yes, you see, we were now on the Autobahn. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, we were soon to realise that more hazards were very quickly on the horizon. Do you know, I read somewhere that the Autobahn is the pinnacle of the German driving experience. Perhaps the ultimate in driving altogether. Virtually all of the world's serious drivers have heard of it and long to take their shot at conquering it. Well, do you know, that's fine if you're driving a Porsche or a BMW or some flash car. <laughs> but chugging along in a truck that found it hard to touch 60 miles per hour. <laughs> it was quite simply insane. Honestly, so you're driving in the right-hand side of the truck, remember? On what is, to the Brits, the wrong side of the road. <laughs> so you're looking through your mirror and you've got a slow lorry in front of you and you're thinking, can I overtake it? Can't I? Do I? Don't I? Do I? Don't I? And you just start to pull out a little bit and then you have to pull back in again. This was the big question, do I, don't I, as we approached even slower trucks, did we dare overtake? Apparently now you're not allowed to overtake trucks in Germany, somebody told me. But like I say, this is driving a right-handed truck on the right-hand side of the Autobahn back in the early 90s. <laughs> Uh, if anyone's sort of like driven a truck that you maybe used to, uh, who's listening to this where you know you need to put your size nines through the floorboard to get up any any speed and then on attempting to overtake another sizable vehicle you will know that to get to that stage one has to almost drive to within a few meters of that vehicle before attempting to pull out yeah you see it all the time on the motorways, don't you? The, the lorry's trying to pull out and they get almost as if they're linking to the truck in front before they pull out. It's because they have to. However, at the moment one appears to overtake, you, you then hit at this wall of... I don't know, it's, it's just like a, a wind, a wall of wind. To the frustration of the cars behind that two trucks are having a game of who can beat who. You've done it, haven't you? You've driven along the roads, I'm sure. You've been along the, I don't know, the motorways in the UK or whatever, and you've been thinking, oh, my word, what's these lorry drivers trying to do? Are they, are they chasing each other? Are they racing each other? No, they're not. They're just literally, it's once you pull out, you are suddenly then 
hit by this wind and it you just seem to lose your power until eventually you get past the truck of course <laughs> it would appear at first that we would have lots of time to pass the truck in front as the headlights behind us were tiny specks on the horizon uh -uh. Don't forget, this is the German Autobahn with large cars and very little speed limits. It was sort of like the poor fox chasing the roadrunner beep, beep, in the cartoons that I used to love when I was a kid. And suddenly, from nowhere, a fast, fancy car would shoot past. Oh, that was close. Dare I overtake now? <laughs> Oh boy, and do you know what I remember? Some type of ring road around Frankfurt Amman, the largest city in the German state of Hesse, uh, which is the fifth largest city in Germany. And the reason why I remember this is due to the fact that uh, I was driving on the roads near Frankfurt and I saw a sound, a sound, a sign to Usen, which is uh yeah it's a small town in hessen okay and i'd stayed there uh, for a couple of weeks back in uh the late 70s anyway i'm pointing out this sign to my co-driver and chatting merrily about days as a teenager and we'd seemed to travel an awful long time when all of a sudden i pointed to another sign pointing to usen and i said hang on a minute what's going on it felt a bit like driving around the M25 near London, only forgetting to get off. You see, the problem was this motorway, this this part of uh, the, the the this fancy German autobahn, was actually part of a circular road around Frankfurt. So we'd gone right way around in a whole circle, couldn't believe it, missed the turn off. See, no, satnaz. But finally, finally, into Austria, we decided we needed somewhere to sleep. And thus we sought for a room at the inn. Hmm. I can't really remember the exact location, but I think it was somewhere around Linz where we saw a sign advertising a bed and breakfast. And so, as my co-driver Dave was at the uh, the wheel driving at this point, and we we, we we pointed out, yeah, that's a bed and breakfast. I said, look, I'll, I'll jump out, I'll jump out the truck, and I'll inquire. Well, you know, all was going really, really well until until my my, my co-driver Dave realised that he was blocking the road and he needed to move on. Again, okay, this is fine, not a problem. <laughs> until he realised. This was a one-way street, and he couldn't turn around. And so there I was, about to knock on the door, looking, thinking, hang on a minute, what's going on? I see the truck disappearing in the distance. <laughs> and having knocked on the door of this bed and breakfast with no answer, I realised then that I could be in some serious trouble. And, do you know, did I learn anything about not worrying? Do you remember the story I told you about being on the M25, being stuck with all the Bibles in the car when we were going to Russia? 
those lessons, forget it. They'd gone. They'd, they'd clearly gone. Clearly, I'd not learned anything because straight away my heart starts thumping in my chest and I'm feeling, hang on a minute, am I going to be sick? It was one of those moments in life that you realise that no matter how much faith one has and no matter how godly you want to be, that a string of rather blue language suddenly erupts from deep within. <laughs> you think, wow, where did that come from? You see, the reason being was that at that point I realised that I had no money on me. I'd had no passport on me. Do you know what? I didn't he even have my coat. All these were in the truck and the truck had gone. Needless to say, it was freezing cold and it started raining. <laughs> Enter Basil Faulty mode. For those who don't know who Basil Faulty is, all I can say is I apologise. You'll have to Google it or something or use another search engine. But Basil Faulty, who was played by the wonderful John Cleese, suddenly exploded once again from deep within my soul. And, you know, it reminded me of the time when the Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on my door, which you laugh, if you, if you don't know that story, you'll have to go back to some of my early podcasts. So there I was, I wanted to shake my fist at God and, and sort of like shout, well, thank you, God, very much. Look at this mess you've got me in. Then, of course, one starts imagining the conversation that I would have had once Dave found me. Something like, um, thank you, David. Um, when I expect you to drop me off, I expected that you would at least wait to say goodbye before disappearing into the sunset. The rain came lashing down. I was soaking wet. It was dripping off my nose. Hang on a minute. What? This can't be right. I'm in a beautiful town in beautiful Austria with snow-capped mountains. But it's raining. It's dreadful. It's cold. This simply is not Good enough. So again, images of Basil Faulty come to mind as I found a decent hotel. It doesn't matter what it would be. It wouldn't be good enough. I didn't have any money. I can just imagine the conversation with the owners, a sort of strange rendition of Mrs. Richards coming out. And again, apologies for those who have not seen the TV show. But, you know, I can imagine me saying to the owner, when I pay for a view, I expect something more interesting than this. Yes, well, this is Austria, sir. Well, it's not good enough. <laughs> I tell you what, I was in one bad mood. You see, nobody would have understood the the sort of like the, the anger, <laughs> the resentment, the coldness that was gnawing into my bones. And it didn't matter how lovely the um, a hotel owner would have been. You know, I can just imagine saying to him, but you don't understand the way my luck's been going. I don't even know if I'm going to survive a night here. So, of course, you know, the hotel manager will probably say, oh, yes, yes, I often don't bother singing, oh, what a beautiful morning, and think, oh, there's another one snuffed in the night. But this, all these scenes are before me and I'm thinking, oh Lord, will you not just rescue me? Do you know what the worst part of this now developing nightmare was when I looked down the road, I realised 
that there was a crossroads. And who should be passing over the crossroads at the bottom end instead of coming up? Yep, you've guessed it, my co-driver Dave, with the large letters of children in distress written on the side of a truck. <laughs> Never mind children in distress. What about me in distress? <laughs> Yet little did I know that, bless him, Dave was also in distress. He was also at a point of a breakdown as he desperately tried to locate the road that he dropped me off on. Remember, no sat-navs, no phones. <laughs> did he pray? Of course he did. Did I pray? Nope. I was too angry. And yet, miraculously, after what seemed like hours, but probably was only maybe 10, 15 minutes, maybe half an hour max, he suddenly pulled up alongside me. I, I, I don't even know where he came from. But I could see his face. <laughs> he was shocked. He was white. He was mother. He wasn't white. He was very, very pale. He looked sick, sickly. And I simply jumped back into the truck and nonchalantly stated, oh, the bed and breakfast was shut. <laughs> Didn't mention anything else. Didn't mention what was going through my head at that time. But we did eventually find a lovely hotel. And uh, yeah, all scenes of the old Basil Fawlty finally had gone as I managed to get some sleep. But the nightmare journey hadn't finished. The next country on our list was Hungary. Budapest was very pretty, though we didn't have time to stop and explore, straddling the Danube River with the Buda Hills to the west and the Great Plain to the east. Budapest did appear to be a city that one day I might return to. But I was also soon to learn the Danube, which is actually Europe's second longest uh, river, actually flows into Romania. In fact, this river was once a long-standing frontier of the Roman Empire. Did you know that? The Danube passes through or touches the borders of 10 countries. Romania, Hungary, Serbia, Austria, Germany, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Croatia, Ukraine and Moldova. And it's amazing. It's a mighty stretch of water. And of course, the Danube is famous for the Blue Danube, a common English title, uh, which was, I think it was a waltz by some Austrian composer, <laughs> Strauss, uh, apparently composed in 1866. However, from what I saw of it in Romania, it wasn't blue. It was pretty dirty, a dirty brown, in fact. However, before we hit Romania, we did have one big problem. That was actually getting into Romania. You see, the, the customs at the border crossing didn't want us to go into Romania because they knew we were carrying aid. And basically, they were jealous. To them, it was just rude that we should dare use their roads and use their diesel to help their rival country no matter what problems the children of Romania faced. <laughs> Apparently one of the reasons the Hungarians and Romanians aren't too friendly was due to the fact that in 1918 Romania took Transylvania 
from Hungary. There are other issues too, but land grabbing, it's just not on, is it? I mean, you know, isn't this what the Palestinians fight over? <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit tongue-in-cheek. We'll come on to that in another podcast. Anyway, there I was. 1,702.4 miles from home. About to enter into a country where we would spend two more weeks working in the hospice which would help build. Being told that we couldn't go any further. And when the customs asked to see our passports, they simply took them off us, leaving us stranded. We sat there looking at each other. Hours passed by and nothing happened. Did we pray? (laughs) You bet, (laughs) both of us. Did anything happen? Nope, we still sat there going absolutely nowhere. Eventually, a rather annoying official wanted to know just why we were so eager to get to Romania. His smile was distinctly sickening and we knew he was after something of an an award for being willing to allow us to receive our passports back and to leave this alleged checkpoint. So eventually, far too many hours later, and after forcing us to bribe him with money, we were allowed to continue our very long and tiring journey into Romania. Crossing over the border in Oradea felt like we'd actually won a victory. Finally, we were in Romania. But our relief was quickly followed by shock and dismay. You see, on our map, the paper map, not the sat-nav, because we didn't have a sat-nav, the paper map in front of us, it stated that we should be picking up the A1 road. Yep, that's what it said, the A1. So, of course, images go to the A1 in the UK. But this wasn't any dual carriageway or a a motorway. This was actually nothing more than a dirt track with dirty big potholes all over the place, bringing great risk to badly damaging our tires and wheels. Other images come to mind, along with the shockingly bad, bad roads, which were causing lots of problems due to us driving in the dark, suddenly, Out of nowhere, a strange dark shape would appear in the distance. Almost too late, we would then have to hammer on the brakes and avoid this dark shape, which turned out to be a horse and cart, with Romanians travelling early on the unlit roads as the night slowly turned to day. There were so many other problems as we headed towards Bucharest, before heading further east to Cenavoda. Oh boy, we saw poor, dirty gypsies, Roma, women and children begging all over the place. There was so much poverty. And yet, strange as it may sound, when we appeared to get close to Bucharest, the roads suddenly improved. Suddenly there was a decent motorway. Almost as if 
Ceausescu had wanted to impress anyone who had flown into Romania and was only staying in Bucharest. <laughs> but one clear memory at the end of our outward journey was the stress I suffered just getting to Cenevoda, which was at least 1,958 miles long, not taking into account the many times we got lost. The stress was so bad that as we pulled into St. Lawrence's Hospice, at last we'd got there! And suddenly, bang, I suffered this humongous migraine. But you know what? Working with the tiny children dying with AIDS <laughs> soon made my trivial problems and that nightmare journey pale into insignificance. Chenavoda is not a large town. It's, it's quite small, actually. Uh, I believe the population, as of 2016, which is the furthest I could go back for records, was around 20,500 people. The name of the town is derived uh, from a Bulgarian name, uh, meaning Cherna Voda, two, two words, it means black water. And this dreary, dreary, dark town stands as a, uh, it's part of the Danube port. But you know, there is no romantic blue Danube here. Rather, the black water is much more suitable, hence the name. It houses the Chenevoda nuclear power plant, which consisted of two huge reactors providing about 18% of Romania's electrical energy output. And the construction of the Chenevoda nuclear power plant in Romania originally began in the early 1980s under Ceausescu's role. However, it was not completed until 96. And in the late 90s, the Romanian government decided to complete the second reactor despite sufficient generation capacity in the country and lacking the funds. It was a dreadful place. It was awful. But again, do you know what? The scenery, again, pearled into insignificance when you saw the children abandoned in the Romanian rundown hospitals and the institutions due to the terminal or incurable illness. It was a strange place. It was a strange life. And um, I don't think I'll ever, ever forget those days, especially when we could literally look after the infants. There is so many more stories that I could tell um, and I'll probably share a bit more in the next podcast. However, in a similar way to what I discovered in Russia, we went to Romania thinking those dying children needed us. And of course, in many ways, they did. However, we, or rather I, needed those children. You see, they taught me so much. 
We shared so many tears working there, and it really did break me in many ways. But in essence, had it not been for that ministry, I don't think I would have been able to go into the homes of terrorist victims in Israel or Holocaust survivors in the ministry that I do now to go and listen, to go and weep with the dear Jewish people who shared their horror stories and experiences as we ministered to them. You see, the reason why I don't think I could have entered the homes of terrorist victims in Israel or Holocaust survivors without first learning the lessons of Romania was this. You simply cannot hold a dying child in your arms without being broke. Think of it this way. The disciples of Yeshua, Jesus, could not comprehend Yeshua's words at his last Passover meal or what the church calls the Last Supper. For three years, Jesus had taught them, he'd fed them, he'd lived with them, he'd prepared them for such a time as this. And when Jesus, or Yeshua as his Hebrew name is, broke the matzah bread, or the, the unleavened bread it would have been, and passed it to his 12 disciples, telling them, as it were, another parable. As he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken from, for, for you, taken from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Little did they know that that brokenness would mean in the future. They did, had no idea what that brokenness would mean. Nor did I when I was in Romania. Each one of those disciples of Jesus would be broken through many experiences. Each one, apart from Judas, would be made whole because of Jesus' own willingness to be broken on the cross. You see, there is so much more I could and probably could include here about the work that we did in Romania. However, I want to leave it here for now. And maybe at the next episode, we'll look at one miracle that I personally witnessed. And to hear that miracle, you're going to have to tune in to the next episode of the Eagle's Eye podcast so bless you for listening thank you for your support thank you for keeping on with this journey and we'll journey more so for now shalom peace and blessings to you all <laughs>